Two sisters go missing on a cold December night in Chicago in 1956. They're eventually found dead. Murdered. This case has everything from coerced confessions to mob connections, psychics, pink Cadillacs, haunted roads, and even Elvis Presley. The one thing missing? The identity of the killer. This week, we look into the murder of the Grimes sisters. Welcome, welcome, welcome in, everyone. This is your buddy Brad. We've got another episode of the Killing Missing Hidden podcast. I know we've decided to go with the reverse mullet format of party up front and business in the back of each episode, but I am going to mention that remember, Monday, August 3rd, we've got our super exciting special episode. Uh, the Hidden Pod Cert, where we've got seven stories from seven different podcasters all coming together on our lovely little program. So please, please, please make sure you tune in for all that. I'll also say up front that I am a bit under the weather, so if I sound like crap, it's not my poor editing skills or your audio system. It's my immune system. Stupid thing that isn't working right. All right, but let's let's jump into this one. So we go to the evening of December 28, 1956, where Barbara, who's 15, and Patricia, who's 12, leave home to go watch the Elvis Presley film Love Me Tender. Now, Patricia was born on December 31st, so you sometimes see her age reported as 13 years old, just as an FYI, um, as I typically say in our cases, the Grimes sisters would not return home that evening. This case is considered one of Chicago's most infamous cold cases and has even been described by some as the crime which shattered the innocence of Chicago. I think that's a little dramatic with everything that has gone on in Chicago, but who am I to mess with poetry? And, of course, there's some strange facts which don't make sense in a classic missing persons case. Uh, Really, this reminds me, have you seen those art pieces where if you look at it from one direction, it looks like this beautifully sculpted lion, but then if you take a step to the side, it just looks like a jumbled mess of nonsense? That's kind of how I view this case. If you just look at the bare bones of it, it seems like a pretty standard murder. But if you start looking at it from other angles, it gets really weird really quick. So, let's jump into this labyrinth and see what we can discover. So, Barbara and Patricia were just two of the seven Grimes children. But they were considered the closest, almost inseparable. They were both massive fans of Elvis Presley. Indeed, their plans for the night of the 28th was to see Love Me Tender for the 11th time. I mean, that's reaching into Star Wars level of devotion, but without as many fat guys with lightsabers in the audience. Actually, their plan was to catch two showings of the movie, one at 7.30 and the second showing at 9.30, so they would have really hit 12 showings of this film. 
I can't even name a kid's movie I've been forced to watch that many times. And I've been through some serious, serious movie gauntlets with toddlers during the years. And I, I don't think any of my generation forward will ever understand the pure magnetic charisma of Elvis. He must have been something impressive to witness, but I'm digressing. So Barbara and Patricia, they lived about a mile and a half from the theater they were attending that night. It's unclear whether they walked or took the bus, but they were given $2.50 and instructed to be home before midnight. The girls arrived safely at the theater and sat in front of one of Patricia's friends by the name of Dorothy Wienert. She was attending the film with her little sister, too. However, Dorothy and her sister had to leave during the intermission following the conclusion of the first screening. She said that when she headed out, she saw Barbara and Patricia in line to get more popcorn. Had the Grimes sisters returned home via the bus following their 12th screening, they would have walked in the door around 11.45. But by midnight, they had not made it home. Their mother, Loretta, who I'll refer to just as mom from here on out, sent their older sister, Teresa, who was 17, and brother, Joey, who was 14, to the bus stop to wait for them. Three buses came and went, but the girls never appeared. Teresa and Joey returned home to report this information to their mom. She called several of the girls' friends to see if they had decided to have an impromptu sleepover, but just couldn't find them. Finally, at 2.15 a.m. on what was now December 29th, Mom officially reported her two daughters as missing to the Chicago police. Now, the police got on this case big time. A citywide search was initiated and involved hundreds of officers who were assigned to work on this case full-time. Again, hundreds of officers working full-time just to find these two girls. It's unreal. Search efforts were bolstered by hundreds of local volunteers. Doors were knocked on, canals and rivers were dredged. Over 15,000 flyers were distributed throughout the city. I mean, this is a bigger effort than Chicago put into trying to capture the Blues Brothers, which is one of the greatest movies of all time if you haven't seen it. And I, I will fight you on this point. Don't even come at me. The Grimes Church put together a reward of $1,000 for any information which would lead to their whereabouts. In today's money, that's just shy of ten grand. Um, even Elvis got involved and maybe made a public plea for the girls to either return home or be returned home. Now, as a result of this massive and coordinated investigation, 300,000 people would be questioned. 300,000. That's insane. They conducted around 2,000 formal interrogations. This initially led to two arrests, but both cases fell apart. Now, as great as all this sounds, there was one significant failure by the police. They did not take this case seriously for about a week. Detectives initially insisted that the girls must have run away or were shacked up with their boyfriends. Now, again, Patricia was only 12 slash 13 years old, so that's kind of a creepy conclusion to draw without any supporting evidence. And this was an entire week for the bad guys to get their act together and leave town or for key evidence to disappear or what have you. 
I mean, as we all know by now, time is of the essence in cases like this. Now, despite all of this work and all the man hours put in, which Chicago has never put this many hours into a case since, not a whole lot was uncovered. Probably the most important detail learned was that several other girls who were at the late showing of Love Me Tender saw the Grimes sisters talking to a young man who kind of favored Elvis, and they agreed to get in his vehicle after a show. It was a Mercury. And the girls who made these reports were surprisingly consistent in these details. The man looked like Elvis. They got into a Mercury. On January 22nd, now 1957, after a rapid thaw of snow, a construction worker named Leonard Prescott spotted something odd behind a guardrail as he drove down a rural country road in Willow Springs, Illinois. I believe the exact statement was that he saw these flesh-colored things, which is a crude way to describe what he saw. He stopped the vehicle and wanted to see what was behind the safety steel. He was pretty sure he had found two frozen mannequins, but really wasn't comfortable investigating further on his own in case he was wrong. So he went and brought back his wife of all people to the scene. When she looked, she promptly fainted. It was two nude bodies. When the police arrived on the scene, they quickly identified the bodies as the Grimes sisters. Though the dad, who had divorced the mom, was driven in for a formal and official identification. Um, you know, the idea of this poor man having to drive into the woods on a snowy day to see his naked daughters laid out like this just kind of makes me sick. I'd never wish that upon anyone, and I can't believe the police made him do it that way. All right, but let, let's talk about what was at the scene. So this guardrail has about 10 feet of leveled off ground behind it before it began to fall off into a creek that is unfortunately named Devil's Creek. Barbara, the older girl, remember, was on her left side. Her legs were slightly drawn up towards her torso. She had three obvious puncture wounds in her chest that kind of looked like wounds that would be left by an ice pick. She also had evidence of blunt force trauma to her head and face. Patricia, the younger one, was lying on her back with her head at an exaggerated angle. Her body was actually laying on Barbara's head. Patricia, too, had numerous bruises around her body with the bulk focused on her head and face. Upon the positive identification of the bodies by the dad, over 160 police officers descended on the scene to conduct a search. They were joined by local untrained volunteers. Shockingly, no real evidence was uncovered. And many people, looking back on the scene, and I would be part of this bunch, are very critical of having so many people, particularly untrained people, trampling across a crime scene, potentially damaging or destroying evidence because they don't know what they're doing. 
Now, autopsies were performed the next day by three of the most experienced forensic pathologists in the area. Reportedly, they spent five hours examining each body. They determined that none of the wounds appeared to have been significant enough to cause death and may have been inflicted post-mortem. They estimated the girls were murdered within five hours of leaving the movie theater based on the contents still in their stomach. Now, having said that, there are multiple reports that suggested these three guys absolutely disagreed on a lot of conclusions, and the only way they could create a report was to slowly eliminate possible causes of death until they found something they could all agree on. So the official cause of death was a combination of exposure and secondary shock. So they mediated a compromise. It's ridiculous. They were helpful in that there's no signs of alcohol or other drugs that were in the girls' systems. Barbara engaged in sexual intercourse shortly before her death, but Patricia may not have. We'll discuss that later. Both bodies were described as otherwise remarkably clean. One of the pathologists stated publicly that he believed the bodies had been behind the guardrail for many days prior to their discovery, but had likely been hidden by the snow. Another suggested that the murderer was diabolically clever and used a method which we are unable, I'm quoting now, used a method which we are unable to detect Perhaps he is a person trained in chemistry with a knowledge of unusual poisons. That cracks me up. Why not just claim the girls died from a voodoo curse? I mean, we have the same amount of evidence supporting hidden, unknown, exotic poisons as we do, you know, a a voodoo priestess cursing them to death. Now, (laughs) oddly, in the report, the pathologist kind of blankly said the wounds the girls suffered other than the puncture wounds to Barbara were likely caused by rodents yeah okay wait that's what Wikipedia says but if you go look at the actual citation Wikipedia relies on it doesn't say a dang thing about rodents and that is why You cannot blindly trust Wikipedia, little boys and girls. But in fairness to Wikipedia, I did find another article which stated there were minor wounds to the girls' fingers and toes that were likely caused by rodents. That makes much more sense than than what Wikipedia gave us. The pathologist's report leads us to our first of many mysteries in this case. The coroner's chief investigator was a fellow by the name of Henry Gloss, and he was allegedly fired for releasing information about this case without authorization. But there's some evidence that he may have been canned because he would not play ball with the decisions made and how to investigate this case. He was the one that released the information about Barbara's sexual abuse and he publicly questioned why one prime suspect had been released. What likely did him in, though, was his 
adamant in public insistence that the girls' bodies could not have been dumped out there behind the guardrail uh, for many days because they were covered in a layer of frost. And to have a layer of frost develop over the bodies, the bodies would have to be warmed when dumped in sub-freezing temperatures. Well, according to Harry, that could not have occurred before January 7th. The temperatures prior to then were above freezing, apparently. Officials refused to comment on these allegations and claimed that Harry was just out to make a name for himself because he wanted to run for sheriff in the next election. Okay, so we've got a handful of suspects to go through, and we'll cover that now. The first is Edward Bedwell, perhaps the most well-known of the bunch, if you ever read up on the story. His nickname was Beanie. He was a 21-year-old, semi-illiterate drifter from Tennessee who actually favored Elvis. He worked as a dishwasher at a diner, and the owners of the diner claimed to have seen Beanie and another unknown man with the Grimes sisters on December 30th. The owners claimed Barbara was clearly drunk when she was there, and Patricia merely laid her head on the table, they said it. A schoolmate of Barbara claimed that she and Beanie were in a secret relationship, and Barbara kept pictures of Beanie in her purse. Mom vehemently denied these accusations and said she would regularly inspect the children's bags, and the only pictures Barbara carried were of Elvis. Beanie ended up making a 28-page-long confession, which was published in the local newspapers. Mom immediately discredited the confession as a lie. She claimed her girls would never be in the part of the town described by Beanie, which was essentially Chicago's Skid Row. They were not the sort to engage in any drug use or alcohol use. And Beanie immediately recanted his confession after publication, saying that he was told that he not only would he be released, but that the detective who questioned him bribed him into confessing. There's also lots of details of the confession that don't match the evidence the, court or the pathologists had. For example, Beanie claimed that the sister's last meal was beer and hot dogs. That was not what was in their stomach, according to the autopsy. Plus, a 28-page confession is pretty impressive for somebody who's considered semi-literate. Here's a fun fact. His lawyer was a fellow by the name of David Bradshaw, and he drove a bright pink Cadillac. I don't know why, but that makes me laugh. It makes me think this guy was one of the original shysters out in the world, um, but he was able to help get Beanie out of jail. So suspect number two is a fellow by the name of Max Fleeg. He was 17 years old and was considered a prime suspect for a spell, but police couldn't gather enough evidence to formally charge him. He was coerced into taking a polygraph test, which was improper under Illinois law at the time. During the test, he admitted to committing the murders, but they don't have any evidence supporting his claims, and now the police can't use this polygraph test 
No idea why they made the kid do it. So they were forced to release him. Strangely, unfortunately, Max here ended up going to jail for an unrelated murder of a young woman. The last suspect we're really going to talk about is a fun one. Walter Krantz. He phoned the police before the bodies were found, claiming that he had psychic powers and he knew exactly where the sisters would be found. And it turns out he wasn't far off. Though he refused to give his name during the call, the operator traced the call to his general location, and the police eventually tracked down Walter. I mean, there can't be that many folks claiming to have psychic powers in a given neighborhood. They didn't really buy into his psychic story, and found out that his handwriting matched one of the ransom notes sent to the Grimes family. Yes, there's ransom notes. We'll get to that. Ultimately, the police let Krantz go because, again, they lacked any substantial physical evidence linking him to the murders. I mean, remember I said in the opening this was a cold case, so you shouldn't be surprised that nobody stayed in jail. Not even the crazy psychic. Okay, so at this point... There's just a barrel full of craziness that isn't normally discussed when people talk about this case. We're just going to jump into the middle of this and sort our way through the piles as, as we can. So let's start with sightings of the Grimes sisters. Now remember, the autopsy pegged her death as occurring within five hours of leaving the theater. The movie ended at 11.30 p.m. So... That means, let's be a little bit, a tiny bit generous. We'll say that they should have been killed no later than 5 a.m. on December 29th. But we have lots of reports of sightings after that time period. There's a security guard who reported having seen the girls and giving them directions on the morning of December 29th. A truck driver reported seeing the two girls with three men in a car on the evening of the 29th. One of Patricia's classmates reported seeing her eating at a restaurant at 6.30 p.m. on December 30th, though she did not see Barbara around. On January 1st, multiple passengers on a bus called the police to report that the sisters rode the bus with them. We're not done. There's more sightings. A night clerk at the Unity Hotel claimed he refused to rent them a room around 9 p.m. on January 2nd. Three store employees of a retail store reported seeing the Grimes sisters listening to Elvis records on January 3rd. So, if these reports are to be believed, the sisters carried on for at least another four days after they were determined to be dead, without any known money or place to stay. And at some point before the bodies were found, that's as close as I can put this down, a woman from Minnesota ran into the girls in Nashville at a bus station and led them to a state employment agency to find work. The agent they allegedly met with recognized their pictures and before investigators could say anything, said, oh yeah, that was the Grimes sisters. That's awfully weird. I mean, that's... That's about 500 miles between Chicago and Nashville. 
only for them to have to turn around and go back 500 miles to end up dead. Lastly, we have Sandra. She was a classmate of Patricia's. And Sandra received two phone calls around midnight of January 14th. On the first phone call, the caller hung up when it was answered. But the second time it rang, Sandra's mother answered and heard a voice saying, Sandra, is that you? Is Sandra there? Before the call abruptly ended. Sandra's mom said the voice was female, sounded scared and maybe even depressed, and was fairly confident it was Patricia's voice. So here we have, I don't know if you could call that a sighting, potential evidence of Patricia possibly being alive as late as January 14th, when the forensic evidence says there's no way she's alive past sunset on December 29th. It's weird. All right, let's go to another pile of weirdness. There was a triple murder which occurred the year before that is remarkably similar to this one. In October 1955, three young boys, John Schuschler, who was 13, Anton Schuschler, his little brother, who was 11, and Robert Peterson, who was 13, went missing after seeing a movie. Two days later, a worker who pulled over in a park to take his lunch break found there three naked bodies in a ditch just off the road. The three boys had been beaten severely, and at the time the autopsy revealed they all died of strangulation. Robert had also been slashed across the face multiple times. Now these cases actually went unsolved until 1994, when, this, this kind of gets out of hand, when a former stable hand named Kenneth Hansen, who was 22 at the time of the murders, was arrested at age 61. The only reason he was caught is because of an investigation into a 1977 murder of a candy heiress, maybe the Henry candy bar heiress, if you're a Seinfeld fan. And that murder was part of a much larger investigation into a horse world scandal involving the killing of horses for insurance money. Several people who worked at the same stable as um, Kenneth mentioned that he bragged about killing three boys for refusing to provide him sexual favors. So that's two similar murders committed in the Chicago area with a potentially similar M.O. And it frankly wouldn't shock me to learn that Hanson was behind the Grimes sisters' death but as I've said a half dozen times, there's no evidence connecting him to the crimes. We've got all these suspects and no evidence connecting anyone to the murders. Okay, the next vat of crazy is the media. Oh my God, you think the media is bad now? This You should read about what the media did in this story. I'm, I'm going to cover some of the highlights, but it's, it's wackadoodle. This story was sensationalized to the max. I mean, at the funeral for the sisters, there were so many members of the press fighting for position to get good photographs. They ended up standing on headstones, trampling over flowers left at grave sites. 
knocking over flowers, breaking ornamentations. I mean, it was a disaster and so disrespectful. They, the media published the names of all the members of the Grimes family, as well as their address. They also, for some reason, published all the names of the pallbearers, who were the girls' classmates, and included their addresses in the newspaper. The Chicago Tribune offered readers $50 if they could come up with a theory of the murders worthy of publication. The Chicago Sun-Times <laughs> documented the mom's shopping trip to the store and had professional models show off what the girls were dressed in when they went missing. Because this story stayed in the headline for weeks and because such personal information was released, Mom began receiving strange and threatening phone calls. As mentioned before, she also received several ransom letters. Uh, one noteworthy ransom letter was actually a series of ransom letters. The classic cutout from newspapers and, and magazines. Um, and those letters were traced back to an inmate at a local mental institution. Even these poor pallbearers, who again are teenage and preteen girls, received phone calls and letters claiming that they would soon end up like Barbara and Patricia. It was just absolutely ridiculous. I mean, bravo, media. You ruined multiple families' lives because you wanted to sell copies. There is one little pile of crazy that I stumbled onto that suggests the police may have been involved in some sort of cover-up. Not a cover-up of the murder itself, but a cover-up of some of their potentially sloppy work. Now, this comes from an unnamed source, so take it with, as you will. But the source claims that the police brass and other important government types like to drink at a bar off of Archer Avenue. The theater, by the way, was located on Archer Avenue. The source overheard some of their conversations, including one that was a fairly heated argument regarding the refusal to release information that both girls had been sexually abused. And there was apparently even a significant amount of, let's say, DNA evidence left on both sisters. Another small oddity, the sisters were found, where, when the sisters were found, excuse me, there was a family which lived near the crime scene. Once the police were there and all that, they moved immediately. I don't mean that they packed up their stuff and that weekend, you know, put their house on the market and moved out of town. I mean, they got in their car and they left. Furniture was left behind. Toys were still in the yard. A 1955 Buick sat rusting in the driveway. And again, this is 1957, so it's not that old of a car. Eventually, the house burned down, and the owner of the land knocked down the remains of the structure for safety reasons. It's become a, or it became a popular place for teenagers to go, uh, I guess on dares or to look for ghosts of the girls or what have you. Uh, police have pretty much put a stop to this, but locals who live in the area insist that 
Late at night sometimes you'll hear the noise of a car stopping where the house was, the sound of doors slamming, and then the car drives off into the fog, disappearing from view. It's a ghost car. Now, from what I can tell, this family was never investigated by the police. Again, no evidence connecting them to the crime. Today, there are several retired investigators and armchair investigators who continue to look into this case and continue to pull out little puzzling bits of information. Retired Detective Ray Johnson is probably the most famous retired person working on this case. He thinks he solved the crime, that the sisters were murdered by a fellow named Charles Melquist. Melquist was a confessed child killer who went to jail for the murder of Bonnie Lee Scott in 1958, who was apparently killed in a manner very similar to the Grimes sisters. Now, Melquist was buddies with the lead investigator on his case, and that investigator was later found to be heavily connected with what was known as the Chicago Machine. That was the name for the Chicago mob who ran politics in the city. Interestingly, Melquist only served a fraction of his 99-year sentence for Bonnie's murder. I think it was less than eight years. He is believed to be behind two phone calls that mom received, one in 1957 and the other in 1959. And the first call, he creepily just said that he was the one who disrobed the girls. The 1959 call was him gloating about having gotten away with another one and the police never even considered him a suspect. Johnson has also dug up information that suggests high-ranking politicians interfered at times with the investigation. Lead detectives who were close to discovering uh, key evidence would suddenly be charged as being in cahoots with the mob and would be fired or even prosecuted and sent to federal prison. Many of the suspects who were questioned were represented by very high-dollar attorneys who were known to work for the mob. So there's a lot of ickiness here, in case you haven't picked up on it. This isn't a case where I can offer much in the way of analysis. Chicago was notoriously corrupt for decades, and it would not shock me in the least if the mob protected the killer from being found. I don't think and I don't want to suggest that the mob was involved in killing these girls. I think this is probably more of a situation where somebody's little brother or nephew who wasn't quite right in the head went out and did it and they protected him because he was family. None of the prime suspects hold up under scrutiny in my opinion and I'm glad none went to jail. I think this case offers a good example of a strong effort and poor technique mixed in with a dash of corruption. We also get to see how the public can fabricate claims such as the girl claiming Barbara had pictures of Beanie in her wallet and I suspect many of the sightings that reported were 
not truly the Grimes sisters. Now, personally, I'm stuck on the autopsies as being the most fishy part of this to me for some reason. It looks like the three pathologists each reached different conclusions and then, like I said, kind of mediated it down to reach a conclusion they could all live with. That's, that's not how you do an autopsy. If they disagreed, they should have each written a report. Or even better, let one of the pathologists do the autopsy and let the other two critique it. Then other scientists and off police officers and whatnot could see the findings and the deductions made by the one pathologist, the criticisms offered by the two other pathologists, and use that information to as an asset to help identify the killer or at least to hammer out some of the issues such as manner of death. Now, having said that, I do think it's very difficult to get wrong or fabricate the contents of the stomach. And it's pretty well established and has been for some time how quickly food breaks down in a stomach. And if you pull out from the stomach popcorn and Coke or whatever they had, that's half digested and you can do the math to figure out that it's probably been there somewhere in the neighborhood of five hours. There's really not much to argue with there. That leaves open the question of all the identifications we talked about. And the most baffling one to me is the unemployment or the employment agent in Nashville who identified the girls by name without being prompted. I also kind of agree with Mr. Glaus. I don't think the frost would be there unless the bodies were warmed or they were dumped. I don't know what the weather was for this particular area during this time period. I didn't do that research. Shame on me. It's been a crazy week. But it would have to be below freezing for frost to form like that. And I think that would be easy to confirm or refute. And from what I can tell, nobody refuted this. They just said, oh, he's making a fuss because he wants to run for sheriff. They deflected and changed the issue. I mean, again, this is just a weird, weird, weird case. If you focus just on the meat of the case, it's not too bad. But we have this tornado of insanity that encircles the meat of the case. And that tornado is what makes this case so intriguing, of course. So that's it. It's obviously a very sad tale. I mean, no family should have to lose a child like that. No child should be forced to go through what it appears the Grimes sisters went through. And again, I resent, not resent, I strongly disagree with the idea that this was what broke Chicago's innocence. Not the years of public corruption and you know, the mob ruling the city. It was this one case that ruined it. All right, well, we need to get on to something happier, right? Um, so we are going to do our palate cleanser. And here is our offering for the week. How does a scientist freshen her breath? 
Again, how does a scientist freshen her breath? With experiments. Get it? Experiments. It's, it's got the word mint in it. Mint, you know, makes your... Yeah. So we're done. Remember, again, our special event next week. I think it's six days away. The Hidden Pod Cert. Seven awesome podcasts that we put together that I think you all enjoy. They're all independent shows. They're all hidden gems. And I really want everyone out there to check the show out. Again, it's coming out on August 3rd. That's a Monday, so it's not going to interfere with our regular release schedule. But please do not miss it. And I know you will all be good little minions and listen to each and every one of the podcasts that participate to say thank you for their participation and to check out their show to see if it's one that you would enjoy listening to. I mean, I want to be number one in your hearts, but there should be a two, three, four, five, you know, your, your backup podcasts. I'd also say join the Facebook group. Uh, by the time this is released, it'll be too late. But the preceding weekend from this episode, we actually have a poll up to see exactly what episode is going to be played for our first episode in August. And if you were a member of the group, you could vote and you could say, no, I'm tired of hearing about murders. Let's listen to something spooky or I ain't tuning in for spookiness. I want to hear about folks that go missing. But you know what? If you're not a member, you can't vote. You don't get to participate. All right. So our usual deets. Um, you know what? I know I'm not feeling great today. I know my energy is a little lower than normal. But I'm going to try to do this as a YouTuber would, okay? They seem pretty cool. They're hip, right? I mean, I'm an old man. I, I don't know what the kid's like, but I see it on shows enough to know that it must be popular. So here's my best, my best effort at it. All right, guys, go ahead and smash that subscribe button so you don't miss any of our gnarly stuff and make sure you hit all five of those stars. We need a galaxy shining down on how great we are. We'd love to hear from each and every one of you, so hit Leave us a review. Let us know why we're so awesome. Send us an email whenever you want. We want to know how much you love our crazy nonsense. Share this with your buddies. Let them know what they're missing out on. And let us know what we could do that would make your life so much better. Was that obnoxious enough? I know I didn't fully bring it, but, you know, I really am just too humble to be that outlandish. It's... I just far too humble. In fact, I know you're all intimidated by my humility. That it's you know, as I've said before, maybe even on this show. Once you get past my intelligence and my good looks, and my sense of humor, um, and my general charm, it's it's my humility that really stands out, and I'm very proud of that. And I like to tell people about it. Okay, well, um. With that, I must say goodbye. I know it won't be the same without me in your life for the rest of the week. It will probably be much better. So y'all stay safe. Look forward to seeing you at the pod cert. Be cool. And I'm going to end it now. Thank you for listening to Kellen Missing 
subscribe and share. Questions? Email us at info at kmhpodcast.com.